Welcome to Outspoken, where we dive deep into the topics and intersection of technology, money, business, and passion. I'm your host, Shana Cosgrove. You don't get a job because people don't think you can do it. People aren't looking for you to fail. People want you in the job. They want you to succeed. We often think of engineering as a science, but it's also an art. We don't often think of it as an art and we do this whole left brain, right brain thing. I think engineers are very creative. Engineering teaches you to solve hard problems. That's really the focus of what I believe an engineering degree provides. How do you solve hard problems with limited resources? And in our case, those solutions protect and save lives. This podcast is sponsored by Nyla Technology Solutions, an SBA-certified 8A, hub-zone, woman-owned small business specializing in full-stack software engineering and data science services to the U.S. government. Our innovative solutions are built to match the speed of mission. For more information, partnering opportunities, and new job openings, please visit our website, www.nyla.io. Where are you this morning? I am in Annapolis Junction in the office. I do spend a lot of time coming to the office. I just, the nature of the work, the fact that, hey, our employees need to come in. I feel like, hey, I need to be in the office too. I need to be visible. It's important for people to know that they have access. And except for when I'm on a meeting like this, the door is usually open. (laughs) (laughs) What is your role? Tell us what your role is. I work for Lockheed Martin. I'm the vice president of cyber and intelligence. It's part of the rotary emission systems portion of the business. At a meeting I was just at, there was an analyst who spoke about Lockheed Martin. And, you know, he was trying to describe what the analyst view of Lockheed Martin was. But then there's the four specific business areas. And and when he got to rotary emission systems, he was funny. He goes, yeah, as analysts, we think of rotary emission systems as Sikorsky and all other, and Sikorsky (laughs) makes the helicopters. But, you know, there's this piece of rotary emission systems that I'm responsible for that's doing cyber and intelligence. And it's both from uh, national security and, you know, the intelligence community, as well as the DOD community in doing cyber work, intelligence work for all of those communities. So is it 100% uh, DOD focused? No, it's both the NSA and the DOD supporting both. And there's kind of some synergies across those two organizations. And your bio says it's over half a billion dollars. Yes. You know, and and we're trying to grow it. But as as we all know, this is the pie and we're all trying to grow our piece of the pie. So, uh, continuous efforts, I will say, I've been in the role for two years. And hey, having to recompete for the existing business that you have, as well as trying to grow the business has probably been one of the more important pieces of of the role. What was it like to get the position? So you've been in this role for two years. Was it, were you in a parallel position or was this a promotion up and elevation of responsibilities? It was actually a promotion. So going from being a director in electronic warfare to taking on this role of cyber and intelligence. Now, one thing that I'll say is it was everything was different. In my career, I've changed jobs, had a lot of different jobs. But this is the first time that I've really changed everything. I've changed the customers, changed the people that I work with, changed the location. Every other job that I've had, maybe I changed part of it. You know, I went from being a program manager of one job to the program manager of another job. I went from being the integration and test lead on a job to being the engineering lead on the job. So in all the other assignments I've had, I didn't have to change everything. This was changing everything. It's actually been very rewarding. You know, this is a great community, both within Lockheed Martin as well as, I'll say, you know, in this Fort Meade area, 
you know, between the Fort Meade Alliance and AFSIA, it's just a community of competitors. I'll call it. You know, in, in one day you're competing with with a company, the next day they're your teammate on a project. So just a great community that supports each other as well as the Fort Meade community. What was the process like for applying for the job or were you voluntold to apply for the job? It was actually a combination of both, I would say. You know, there wasn't a job rec that I applied for. It was multiple jobs, multiple vice president jobs became open as as kind of there was movement in, in upper leadership. And I declared that I was interested in a couple of those open vice president positions. There was an interview process and uh, I was offered this job. It actually went really quick. I think I interviewed the second week of January and I was in the job February 1st. What was the interview like? Did they give you questions in advance? Was it just conversations on the spot? Was it the same questions with different people? It was a panel interview. You know, my current boss, uh, human resources, the enterprise performance vice president, and one of my boss's peers. And it was a Zoom call. I was actually working a proposal in, in Denver. It was a Zoom call. And it was what we call, you know, full spectrum leader questions from the perspective of asking you questions to say, what have you done in your past to prove to us that you can do this job kind of in the future. Questions to say, how did you solve hard problems in the past to be able to uh, judge, could I do this this uh, new job? Some of it is around culture. Hey, what's the culture? How do you create culture? How do you communicate with your team? How do you get your team to rally around you and, and solve hard problems? I think a lot of people hesitate to take on larger leadership roles. So there's a self-selection out, not necessarily due to capability, Mm -hmm. but the idea that taking on a larger leadership role is extremely stressful and will have negative impacts on your personal life, perhaps your health. What are your thoughts on that? Because I think a lot of people, you know, I sit around and they're like very capable, but they just look at these positions and think that is not for me. And I think maybe a larger portion of women are self-selecting out as well. You're spot on. You know, women seem to self-opt out. I often use the, the example when I mentor employees, women look at a job description and say, oh, I only meet 80% of the requirements, so I'm not qualified. Most men will look at the same job description and only meet 20% of the requirements. And you know, I'm, I'm using extremes here. They'll say, hey, I, I, meet, I only meet 20% of the requirements. This job was written for me. <laughs> but, but having said that, you know, I've always encouraged people to take stretch assignments, to do different things. And, and I'll look at, even use this example in this cyber intelligence job of taking the leap of faith that, gee, there's an infrastructure around the organization there's people that know what they're doing. It's incumbent upon me to say, who are the people that I, that I trust? Who are the people that I can rely on? And then what do I bring to the organization that's going to help change it for the better? I encourage people to take risks, to take chances. You've proven yourself up to this point and your organization's going to believe in you. And if it doesn't work out, hey, we're a big organization. We're going to find another role for you because we were honest about, hey, giving you a shot. Maybe it doesn't work out, but you've proven yourself to this point. It's more of constant communication with your leadership and your team to say, constantly communicate what's going well, what's not going well, and how do we improve? You don't get a job because people don't think you can do it. You know, the people aren't looking for you to fail. People want you in the job. They want you to succeed. And you have to have that attitude that you are going to succeed. You have to be able to early on ask for help if you're not succeeding. And if you don't ask for help, then you will fail. Yeah, I like those two points. One is that even if you do fail, it could be the job's not a fit for you. 
but it doesn't mean necessarily that you are a failure, right? right. It could just be that this was not the moment in time for you and right. maybe go back and wait for a different opportunity or it was seasoning and you learned. The other is to communicate and to be open about the risks and the strengths and to get the support. I think the other thing that's interesting too is, and what I actually love about work versus college was they're not trying to fail you. No one, no one in college in engineering school, they're trying to fail you out. I don't know why, but we can get into that later. But at work, everybody wants the project to succeed. They want you to succeed. No one wants to test you and have you fail. It's interesting. I I worked a program and on the program, you know, we had reliability issues and, you know, it's just kind of a great saying that somebody had. Somebody asked the question, what's the difference between a fault and a failure? The reliability expert responded by saying, well, you can have a lot of faults, but you're not a failure. You know, and and if you think, hey, this may not be a strength area, you may have some faults, and that's where you have to surround yourself with people that have that expertise, but you're not a failure. Yeah, and I think it's unreasonable to think that you can do all the things or need to do all the things. And that's why we have people that are broad, and then that's why we have people that are deep. Subject matter experts that know everything about a topic. And that's the big shift from leadership is moving from individual contribution to recognizing who can do a job, putting them in the right job, supporting them. And it's such a fundamentally different role from your individual performance because now your performance is actually measured on other people's performance. Right. And how do you surround yourself with the people that cover your gaps or your faults? As I just said, you know, how do you find people that... They cover those gaps and faults so that the team as a whole is successful. And my gaps are different from your gaps. So you you may need to surround yourself with different team members than, than the team members on my team. You studied electrical engineering for both undergrad and your master's, which is unfortunately still makes you a unicorn today. <laughs> there are so few female electrical engineers the rate of women studying electrical engineering has really not increased since you've gone to college, unfortunately. What was it that when you were in high school that you think, I'm going to go off to college and major in electrical engineering? I will say it was just that whole love of math and science was really kind of my rationale for going into electrical engineering. To this day, I still remember going into my guidance counselor's office after kind of looking through brochures and and saying to my guidance counselor, hey, I think I want to go to to college for engineering. And based upon my likes and dislikes, I I think I want to go into electrical engineering. And, you know, I will say initially my guidance counselor tried to talk me out of it. I mean, here I was a great student, you know, doing really well in math and science and he's trying to discourage me. And I said, well, uh, this is what I'm applying for. And and I got in and to your point, there's probably about 20% women in the electrical engineering program. And fast forward 30 plus years, and it's still about 20, 25% women in electrical engineering. So we still have a lot of work to do in getting more women in engineering, but it was really that love of math and science. And granted, Engineering school was challenging, it was hard, but there was a, a team of us that constantly worked together to, to ensure that we all got that diploma after the four years. Did you know any electrical engineers before you declared that you were going to be an electrical engineer? No, no, I didn't know any. My parents were not, you know, my father worked construction, you know, my mother was a teacher by training. They were unclear on what I was going to do. I'm sure that they, you know, they didn't even understand the job market to know the broad number of opportunities that having an engineering degree would provide. To your point, I was the unicorn in the family to say, what what are you going to do with that degree and and how are you going to be successful? But it all worked out. (laughs) In general, I just, as as I talk to students, you know, high school students, grade school students, college students, 
engineering teaches you to solve hard problems. That's really the focus of what I believe an engineering degree provides. How do you solve hard problems with limited resources? And resources include people, it includes money, it includes time. And when you have those limited resources, how do you solve those hard problems such that you have an adequate solution? And in our case, you know, those solutions protect and save lives. That's the beauty of an engineering degree. And that's why I think, probably I didn't know it then, but now I realize having an engineering degree, you can do anything you want. You can start your own business. You can go work at a company like Lockheed Martin. You can go work in the banking industry. I think of cybersecurity, just all of the threats, all of the things that are going on in the world. It's not just engineering from working for the DOD or the intelligence community. It's every industry that you can think of requires an engineer. So you can do anything you want. That's what's wonderful about it. Yeah, I studied it because I thought it was a a safe bet. No matter what I ended up wanting to do, I thought, well, I can at least get a job with this. And it's a good foundation for if I wanted to be a lawyer or a doctor or (laughs) a business person, that it was a pretty safe foundational bet. And I do think coming out of engineering school, that is the number one thing you were taught is really a comfort with breaking down problems into smaller bites and then solving the larger problem and a large comfort with problems. I mean, the problem sets, right? That That's a huge part of your homework is just problem set upon problem set upon problem set and then uh, group projects as well. And the group projects, really learning how to work with a team. You know, that's going to happen wherever you go. I mean, you're doing your individual part. In general, your part has to work well with other other parts of the project. So being able to work individually as well as work in a team. And you're talking about the difference between engineering school and industry. In school, you're rewarded for doing the job by yourself and solidifying that knowledge individually. In industry, you're rewarded for getting something done efficiently. And if somebody's already solved 50% of your problem and you get that solution from them and then you finish the the remaining 50% and you get it done in half the time, you're rewarded for that. Having that approach of being able to leverage what's already been done by somebody else as well as your expertise to build something faster, better, quicker is how you're rewarded in industry. Want to stay up with the latest on Outspoken? Hit subscribe in your favorite podcast app. Also, if you like what you're hearing, please be sure to take a minute to rate the show too. If you have any topics or suggested guests for the podcast, please email us. We would love to hear from you. Outspoken at Nyla.io. So if you could go back and do it again, because today now there's cyber degrees, data science, applied mathematics, Would you still do the same thing? Yes. I'd probably combine it with a computer science degree. You talk about doing something that that you like or don't like. And I think about how I was doing systems engineering and one of the software engineering managers approached me to say, hey, we've got this job opening. We think you'd be great for it. And I never thought I'd like doing software. I mean, that's why I picked electrical engineering, which was more what I'll call hardware systems engineering focus. And I finally, you know, relented and said, fine, I'll I'll go do this software assignment. And it was implementing requirements that I had written. And let me tell you, doing that software assignment was one of my favorite assignments, you know, kind of writing software, integrating that software on the hardware, and then actually going and integrating that software on the hardware, on the submarine with the real hardware, it was great. So, you know, and then fixing things real time. Yeah, that is the beauty of software <laughs> that you can fix and redeploy pretty immediately versus having to burn and stamp out new versions. It's a lot faster. We all know with hardware, you know, you change something and it's six months to a year before before you get that respin to say, did it work? So 
Yeah, real-time fixing software. Do you remember what programming language it was? Was it C, C++? And C++, but also um, assembly language. Well, I figured it's, it's on a ship. It might have been a small hardware component. You know, we were doing kind of some of the front end, you know, inboard receivers and beam forming for uh, sonar equipment. So it was pretty amazing. Was your first job out of college with Lockheed Martin? Yes, I actually had two co-op intern assignments with, at the time, General Electric, now Lockheed Martin. I really had my whole career with the General Electric Lockheed Martin legacy, but two internships and then did everything from systems engineering to software engineering to integration and test. I talked about actually going dockside on a submarine. I've been dockside on the surface ship. I've been an engineering program manager, program manager of, of couple programs, did business development for a little bit of time. I mean, just you talk about, you know, here I am taking an engineering degree with my experience in going and doing business development. But, you know, one thing to be said is, as engineers, we think about cost, schedule, and technical. But what's as important, if not more important, is making sure that the customer's happy. You can have cost, schedule, and technical all in line, but if your customer's not happy, then uh, that's not a good thing. So, you know, I kind of learned in that business development assignment how important the customer was, really listening to the customer. I'm a huge advocate of the customer is always right. And if the customer's wrong, see rule number one, which is the customer's always right. And people look at me when I say that and they're like, well, the customer's not really always right. And I go, well, if the customer's not right, then it's incumbent upon you to continue to talk and communicate with the customer to make sure you truly understand their perspective, why they want to do something, why they really need that requirement. Sometimes you can talk them through it and they realize they don't need it, which once again, gets you back to the point of the customer's always right because they're going to come to that conclusion. Having said that, just from my career, I've just taken on different assignments when they've been offered. I've, I've taken the risk in going from doing systems engineering to doing software. I've taken the risk of going from being, you know, just an individual contributor to a project lead or an engineering program manager of a program to them being the program manager. And then I was doing a job and I get a call from my boss to say, hey, you know, we want you to interview for this electronic warfare position. And while I knew the people and I knew some of the programs, I didn't, I'd never worked in electronic warfare. And I said, well, I don't even know how to spell electronic warfare. I don't even know how to spell EW. But I brought to that team my love and attention to detail on the customer. So making sure that they were heard. So just taking those, those many assignments, doing different things. I've never been one to sit still. I've always been one to lean in. I think about one time working on a project where I was doing software and integration on the, on the project. We had a lot of communication back and forth from the, the submarine. And there were probably three days in a row where the questions that were coming back from the integration on the sub were all related to the areas of software that I was responsible for. And based upon kind of three days in a row, I went to my boss and I just said, hey, Al, I need to go to the submarine. I go, every question that keeps coming up is in my area. I can't solve the problems here. I need to be real time. And he's like, go. What a great experience to actually see the work, you know, what we're doing, working on the submarine, or in this case, not working. <laughs> As an honest person, <laughs> you're like, oh, God, who gets this ticket? It's Tish right. again. Right. Oh, it's me again. I drew, I, I drew the ticket again. I need to get this done. But it, it was interesting. I went to work on the submarine dockside and was told, hey, this is a union environment. Get my own hard hat, got my boots to go on the submarine. But what a great experience because, you know, you always say as a software person back in the lab, hey, it doesn't work. And, and they go, oh, what? but it works in the lab. And I oh go, well, God, it doesn't I matter if it works in the lab or it works. It works at my desk. Well, it doesn't matter right. if it works at your desk. It doesn't work on the right. summary. 
you know, just a great experience working hand in hand with the guys and, and women who were, you know, doing the integration and test on the submarine. Across 30 years of working for the same company, did you ever have points where you thought maybe I should try something new? And what made you decide to stay? That's pretty remarkable to have a career. But I feel like I know of plenty of people who work for Lockheed that stay for years and years. So your story is actually not that unique to stay for that long. What is it that makes it so special that people stay for the bulk of their career? The thing that made it special for me was just kind of the breadth of the opportunities that were put in front of me. Working for one company, I could do everything from systems engineering to software engineering to integration and test to the engineering program manager, the program manager, just the breadth of the opportunities. I spent time working in anti-submarine warfare, mine warfare, electronic warfare, cyber and intelligence, doing business development. You know, as part of the business development assignment, I worked in Syracuse, Morristown, New Jersey. I spent time working a proposal in Australia. I, I, I helped work a proposal in the UK. Spent time in France, Germany, Poland, Norway. Just even in, in this assignment, I, I went to Japan and the UK. So just these broad experiences, meeting different people, supporting many different product lines. It's just a great experience. That's the reason why I stayed. I, I never got bored. And if I got bored, you know, I'd go to my boss and say, hey, I need new work. I, you know, I finished this or I've done this before. Can you give me some additional responsibilities? And there was always more. We talked a bit about people who are hesitant to move up the ladder, but there are others who really want to be selected and it's a competitive process. Mm-hmm. What are the three things you look for really in someone who is ready to take the next steps? There's two things that I can think of pretty quickly. Somebody's got to have the desire and the want to take the next steps. And, and not everybody wants to do that. The second thing is they've got to have the skills. If you're going to be the chief engineer on a program, then you've got to have the right tools and, and the right subject matter expertise. If, if you're going to be a program manager, do you have the right skills? And then I will bring in this whole, do you have the ability to work in a team? And what are your communication skills? How do you communicate? How do you adjust yourself for your team? I came into the uh, cyber and intelligence business. And as I said, I didn't have any of the subject matter expertise, you know, for this product area, but I have great communication skills. I have an ability to work with, with a lot of different people and fit in and adjust my style for others. So kind of having that flexibility and adaptability to work in, in different areas, but you have to have the desire and you have to have the right skills. Well, how do you get the right skills if it's a bit of a stretch position, right? So going back to the, mm-hmm. well, I don't know, I don't have the skills for that position, or I'm going to move into business development. I've never done business development before. What's the balance of there's a stretch position and determining if you have the right skills for applying? In every assignment, hopefully you're, you're taking on and trying to get new skills so I, I think that's always going to be the case. I, I don't think there's ever the, the perfect candidate, 100% candidate. We're always going to be taking a chance. It's as the leader, as you're hiring somebody, assessing the person that you're hiring's skills to say, where are they strong? Where do they have gaps? And where do, where do I, as a leader, ensure that I help them with those gaps? And part of you as an individual is self-assessing those gaps to say, How do I ask for help? How do I surround myself with the people who can fill those gaps? Or how do I get training to help fill those gaps? Tell me a little bit about mentorship and what role that's played for you. As a woman who studied electrical engineering, there were probably not many mentors who were also women who studied electrical engineering available for you. If there was, she was probably overloaded herself. So how did you find your advocates and your mentors and people to follow? 
I will say initially when I was part of Lockheed Martin, Lockheed Martin actually set me up with some mentors. And I think it, it became a mutual mentoring session from the perspective of, to your point, there weren't many women mentors. So I was assigned a male mentor. And I think it was actually mutually beneficial from the perspective of, I gave him perspectives of what it felt like to be a woman in engineering and then vice versa. He gave me experience from a business perspective. Actually, the, the one of my first mentors was actually the vice president of finance. So early on in my career. So opposite. So opposite. Exactly. You know, he gave me the experience of the financial aspect of what we were doing. And then I brought my experience of being an engineer in this more male-dominated workforce. As I continued in my career, I did a a lot more of self-selecting my mentors. I'll use one mentor that I had for a period of time. He was my boss. And when he wasn't my boss, I said, hey, will you still be my mentor? But what was really interesting was it was probably, you know, early in my career, but it was the first time in a performance appraisal that my boss had put what I'll call constructive feedback in my performance. How far along in your career were you? Oh, it was like 10 years. Oh, that's a long time to go without constructive feedback. Right, and it was documented, and and, and I had a great performance appraisal. He had given it to the, the secretary to just hand me the performance appraisal. She said, hey, Larry said he doesn't need to meet with you. And I go, well, I want to meet with Larry. To, to talk about it. He kind of is like, well, it's a good appraisal. Why do you want to talk to me? And I go, well, you gave me some, some feedback here and I want to talk about it. I want to make sure I truly understand the constructive feedback because I haven't gotten it in the past. And if I don't understand the feedback that you gave me, then I'm going to fix it wrong. We had a great relationship before, but after that, where kind of it was this, I want to do better. I want to learn more. I want And you gave me really good feedback, but I want to make sure I implement and do what you suggest. And I want to make sure I understand it. If I could do something better after doing that kind of real-time discussion, after that, it was real-time feedback. You did a good job job of handling this meeting, but here's how you could have done better. And we created a a relationship where I was getting what I'll call mid-course corrections real-time. And that was really helpful in my career. There were other mentors. Um, I remember Marv running to my office and he's like, they already called you. And I said, yeah, they wanted me to um, take a job supporting a program that was both in Syracuse, New York and in West Palm Beach, Florida. Marv goes, what did you say? And I go, I asked him for 24 hours. And he, he goes, and what they, how'd they respond? I go, well, they didn't want to give me 24 hours. He goes, well, how'd you convince them? I go, I told him I had to talk to my, my husband <laughs> because I was going to be spending you know, a lot of time traveling to West Palm Beach, Florida. Marv didn't get to me in time, but he's like, okay, let's, you got time, let's talk about it. And he made time out of his busy schedule to um, say, what were the pros and the cons of doing it? And Marv also took the extra step to say, okay, now what does this mean for your personal life? You've got your son, you've got your husband, you know, your family's here. He really did a good good job of taking the time to think about that, that job that they wanted me to do and say, here's why I think you can do it from a professional perspective. What are the roadblocks from a personal perspective and how can I help remove them or not? I ended up taking the job, but what was interesting was he kind of put himself out there to say, if you don't take this job, I got you covered. He had my back. You know, I knew he had my back. Some mentors you can age out, but then all of a sudden you're in a situation and you need to phone a friend and and maybe you haven't talked to a mentor in a couple of years and you pick up the phone and, and you call him and say, hey, what do you think about this? They're always there for you. And then on the other side, I mentor a lot of young engineers, both women and men on their careers. I've gotten a regular rhythm with some. There's others that that I've, same thing, aged out, but then randomly I'll get a call. Hey, do you have time on your calendar today? I got a hot issue. I, I really need to talk to you. 
I've had great mentors and now I'm trying to pay it back. I'm not going to say I'm paying it forward. I'm paying it back, but paying it forward by mentoring multiple people in multiple roles and continuing to push, knowing kind of their capabilities that they can do more. They can, they can take on these challenges, assess which assignments are better for them or, you know, or not better for them. They probably think I solve their problems but I don't. I probably just ask them a lot of questions to help them come to the conclusion for themselves. I don't ever give them an answer. You don't? Um, Isn't that hard? I generally don't ever give them an answer. I generally try and just ask them questions so that I give them confidence or I give them direction as to what's best for them. What is the most common piece of advice you give to young people, to young engineers? A lot of time engineers will come and they're always just talking about, well, I want to get the next promotion, right? I want to get the next job. I reel that back in to say, let's not just talk about the next job. Let's talk about what you want to be doing five or 10 years from now. Because if we think about it from the perspective of what do you want to be doing five or 10 years from now, then I can say, what are the next couple of steps that you have to do to get that that job in five or 10 years? If I want Tish Rourke's job, I want to be the vice president of cyber and intelligence, then we can map out what are some of the steps that you have to take? What are some of the tools you need to put in your toolkit to be able to successfully apply for and have the majority of the credentials to be able to do that job? And And what other assignments are going to help you get there? Don't just think about the next job. Have a a much larger, longer view so that you make sure that the steps that you take in your career path don't derail you from getting to the job you ultimately want. And it's okay to change what you want. Then you can adjust your path. Yeah, I was going to say, do most people know where they want to go? Most people don't when you ask them. But then after you ask them, they probably have thought about it, but have never said it out loud. You know, they're almost embarrassed. And, and I'm like, you, you shouldn't be embarrassed about having goals. How do you be, be successful? If you don't have goals, if you don't set the bar high, then you're never going to achieve those goals. You're never going to go far. You seem very calm and confident as if you've always been that way. Is that how you are or what have you done to earn your confidence calm and confident yeah that there's a joke you know um i was leading a team and there would always be kind of some things that would you know you could see that that there would be tension in the room and and my team would call me the robot because i would never react i've always found that boy you you can do a lot more when you're calm and confident but in being confident you have to also have an ability to, like I say, surround yourself with the subject matter experts or the people who will kind of throw the penalty flag to say, yeah, she's confident, but she's wrong. (laughs) And, you know, hey, let's talk about that. When I make a decision, I will share with my team why I made the decision. Here's why we're going to go down this path or why we're going to select this board versus that board or why we're going to do this in-house versus do it externally. I will explain why I made the decision and explaining why you give people your thought process. And if your thought process is flawed, somebody will say, well, Tish, that's really not correct. And then you can do kind of that mid-course adjustment to say, okay, based upon that new data, then let's do this. One thing that you can't do is you can't stifle people. You have to kind of take those that information in and keep that in your decision process thinking. If you stifle people, then they're going to stop communicating and they're going to stop telling you things if you kind of just go blindly into, hey, I know the answer and I'm not going to take anybody's input. So getting the best out of your whole team is uh, what's what's important. I love it. I'm going to have to play it for my son who wants to just give the math answer without showing his work. 
So instead of just telling the team what the decision is, you're saying, here's how I got here. Here's how I got here. And and you can get buy-in. Yeah, exactly. You've had a long career. Is there anything in your past that if you could do differently, you would? Is there any like, ooh, stories? There's times when on one program, a competitive program, I thought I, I pushed hard on a solution, but I didn't push hard enough. And maybe we would have won the competitive program had I pushed harder on the solution that, that I wanted. So kind of having that confidence in myself to push, when is the right times to continue to push? There was one time on a program where, hey, the relationship with the customer got bad and maybe I waited too long where, hey, my team was working directly with the customer and I thought things were going well and I didn't realize how the relationship had kind of derailed. And so maybe I took too long to kind of insert myself into the process. So I wish I had kind of inserted myself a little earlier. Engineers are, are too proud to ask for help. Sometimes just knowing when to insert yourself into saying, hey, you really need help and here's, and here's how I'm going to help you with that perspective that um, they don't think they need help. Yeah, I think one thing that's coming out from your story that I hear is you talked about it with the faster real-time feedback and the insertion. What I'm learning myself too is some of these conversations might be uncomfortable. And I personally, I'm very direct, but I really don't like telling people when they're not doing well. But it's better to do it sooner. It's less emotional and the correction is there. And having those conversations and getting used to having those conversations is really, I think, valuable and game-changing. So same thing, like your customer doesn't like you. You got to go in and find out why. Right. What are you doing that you can fix? We did a virtual leadership meeting last year and we brought in uh, people to talk about how to handle crucial conversations. And to your point, just being able to have those real-time crucial conversations make them not emotional, make them not personal. How do we make ourselves better? And when you do those things of setting expectations and real-time course corrections, you think about this not just from a business perspective, but you talked about your son. How do you make your children better? This is How do you communicate with your spouse so that you're not talking past each other? How do you have these crucial conversations real-time such that it doesn't just show up in the annual performance appraisal? And the person's surprised. And I think it's making the space and not running away from the uncomfortable conversation. Right, right. Not not being passive. And and that's a hard, hard activity. I am a big reader. I was wondering if there is a book or books that's really impacted you personally or professionally. I have a My Story page, you know, that I usually use when I introduce myself to new people. The book that that I highlight on that is um, The Last Lecture. Oh, I love that one by Randy Pausch. I actually had him as a professor at UVA. It just gets back to that that theme of we always have limited resources. Another book that I love is, granted, I'm a Lockheed Martin employee, but it's called The Skunk Works. And it's about the Skunk Works organization out in Palmdale. Some of the takeaways I have from it are um, engineers not knowing that they're doing the impossible and making the impossible possible. The engineers out in Palmdale, you know, developing that stealth stealth fighter plane and, you know, just defying the laws of physics. As an engineer, just love that, love the Kelly Johnson rules that are in there. So that's always one of my favorite. And then I loved Outliers, The Tipping Point, you know, the Malcolm Gladwell books. What is it about Malcolm Gladwell's books that you like? It's just so kind of matter of fact. I mean, maybe just being an engineer, you just love his whole research and and study where it's so just fact-based. I think about just fine-tuning your skills and practice and people aren't outliers because they, they just lucked out. They're outliers because they practice. They practice their craft, they dedicated themselves to their craft and what they're doing, be it an athlete, be it a band, being successful because you put your heart and soul 
and everything into what you do. You know, I'll also say, you know, we, we talk about books. One of the things I, I thought about as I was preparing for this is, uh, you know, what have I binge watched? You know, <laughs> what have you binge watched? I've never thought to ask that. What have you binge watched? <laughs> the last thing I binge watched was the Jack Ryan series. So oh, you know, yeah. if, if you think about my career, you know, and I started out working in a submarine warfare and the Tom Clancy book, you know, and this goes 30 years back, the Tom Clancy book, The Hunt for the Red October. So, you know, of course, have read all the Tom Clancy books, but of course, have now watched the three seasons of Jack Ryan. And then just last week, there's a documentary on Prime called Goodnight Oppie. It's a documentary about the Mars rovers, Spirit and Opportunity. It gets back to kind of just like my love of what we do. And, you know, you think about what NASA, the NASA team did in sending those two rovers to Mars, where there was an expectation that those rovers were going to go across Mars for 90 days. And Spirit was on Mars for over seven years, Opportunity on Mars for over 15 years. And then the other thing that was pretty amazing about that documentary was just you know, you think about Apollo, the Apollo missions and, you know, being a female engineer, you look at those, the documentaries on the, the Apollo mission and you see the black and white video and it's all white males. What was amazing in seeing um, this documentary, Goodnight Oppie, was just the diversity of the personnel at NASA supporting this mission. Women, men, people of color, we've turned the corner in embracing diversity in our culture, in, in our business. Do we still have a long way to go? Sure. But just a lot of great themes that ran through that, that documentary. Have you been to the Udvar Hazy uh, by Dulles Airport? The NASA, the Space Museum? I've been to the one in DC, but I you haven't have to go to this one with Dulles. You will geek out. It is so amazing. It has everything there. It's like a huge hangar. And yeah. it's got everything, including the space shuttle. It's on the bucket list. Now, I have been to, you know, I've been down to Cape Canaveral. I've been to Huntsville to see some of this, this space stuff there. But it's just amazing. I'm smiling hard. I haven't had a chat with someone about kind of American engineering and the ingenuity and the creativity and what we've been able to create. But when I've been to the Udvar Hazy that was my reaction was like, here are people just like me creating these things. And when you're doing it, you don't know that what you're doing is historic. You're just working on the latest problem and the evolution of this set to another set. And now some mission crisis occurred, or how do we take these tools and pivot them to solve some other type of problem? And how do we also prevent the negative side effects that can happen too with technology as well. Is there anything I should have asked you that I didn't ask you? We're doing a Lockheed Martin. We, we participate in a CyberQuest and CodeQuest with the high school students. We actually have our, our CyberQuest event this Saturday. So I'm really looking forward to that. Is and that nationwide or? It's nationwide. And we also have, we're doing it in international locations. And it's all supported by Lockheed Martin volunteers at our Lockheed Martin facilities. And then we do a similar event in April for CodeQuest, domestic and international locations. STEM in schools, encourage students to uh, pursue STEM and engineering, specifically engineering degrees. So it's just a great activity. What grades is it aimed at? The CodeQuest are like generally 9th to 12th grade. But what you get is, you know, not only are we, we talking to the students, but it gets parents' involvement as they have to bring their, their students to our facilities. We engage with teachers and, and coaches to give them some additional tools. And, and they bring those tools back to their, uh, their schools to then say, how else can they uh, increase the number of students that are involved? I wanted to ask you too, I have a couple of friends in college right now, including my uh, niece who's studying computer science. When is the best time to apply to Lockheed to get an internship? Can you tell us a little bit about the internship program? College hiring happens in the fall. That's generally September to December, but obviously continues 
up until you know May, and then it starts all over again. But generally, interns, the positions get posted, and it's generally like November to February that there's kind of the hardcore push for those interns. LockheedMartin.com slash careers. And all you have to do is type intern. You can select the location or a specific location or just leave it generic, and you can uh, see what internship positions are open. But generally, like in the November timeframe, those those job recs happen. Now, if sites haven't fulfilled all of their needs, there may still be positions open now. So outside of binge watching, is there something about yourself that might surprise us? Anybody who's been to my office may may know this, but I actually sew. I'll make quilts and, you know, the quilt could be a wall hanging. It could be a bedspread comforter. You know, that's kind of my stress reliever. That's where I could say, hey, I finished something. In a job like this, I don't know what I take credit for because there's, you know, a 2,000 person team who support my programs. So I don't really take credit for anything. I'll, I'll take responsibility for the failures, but all the, the positive credit goes to the team. But I'll make a quilt is something to take my time, you know, kind of my de-stressing time. And it's something I can say I completed. Do you do it by hand? With a sewing machine. You have one at your uh, Maryland place? No, I just more in my Syracuse place. <laughs> well, I'm trying to learn how to crochet. Okay. Okay. You know, it, all this stuff is like, a, it's a lost art, right? It's a lost art. Nobody knows how to do that anymore. I think it's good to have the hobby and something to focus on and do and, and creation. And maybe that's tied to engineers that engineers actually love creation. Right. We often think of engineering as a science, but it's also an art. We don't often think of it as an art and we do this whole left brain, right brain thing. I think engineers are very creative. (laughs) Yes, I love it. Thank you so much for taking the time with me this morning. I really appreciate it. I loved hearing your story and uh, I wish I was as calm as you. (laughs) (laughs) I'm working on my poker face. I really thank you for sharing your story and highlighting the willingness to try new jobs and to have that balance of leaning into learning new things and the confidence to believe that you can. Thanks so much for listening to today's podcast. Please be sure to share it with friends and family. If you'd like to follow us on social media, you can find us on Instagram, Facebook, and LinkedIn under the Outspoken Podcast. Thanks again and chin up, heads up, eyes forward.